0: Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand
2: the economy, you have to understand human nature.
0: This podcast is powered by Acast. Now, come here, can I tell you.
2: This is our hundredth, hundredth podcast. Thank you so much for listening, for giving us your time. I know people are busy. I know in the lockdown, people might not be busy. But an hour listening to us rabbiting on is an extraordinary gift that you've given us. So thank you so much. I can't quite believe, my man. A hundred episodes. A hundred. That's a lot of that's a lot of audio. It's a lot of time. That's a lot it's of a you haven't th- you have to listen to me <laughs> Just, and
0: cut it up yeah. and make it plausible. Do you, do you know? <laughs> Take out I, all the bleepers or the bloopers. What are they called? Bloopers. Bloopers. But you know, I I've been In editing. fact the entire podcast is a blooper. <laughs> I've been editing audio for years, but it's always weird editing yourself. I always find it really odd. But, and I'll tell you this, quite honestly, when I'm editing, I'm actually smiling when I'm editing this particular podcast.
2: It's great. That's that's a very very good side. You know you know that John has the man shed at the back, and into it, it's the It's like it's like his refuge. You know, it's it's like his sure little is. oasis of calm. And then he's got me Even more in his so ear. Now. You poor. <laughs> so but what a week in America!
0: What a week! God, I loved it. I was glued, and I was flicking from Fox News to AON during the the actual riots. What's AON? One American Network. Never heard is, of it. Yeah, it's another. one. It's like another one. is called Newsmax. These are these
2: these left wing, right wing. Oh,
0: right wing. Totally right. Oh, these are totally right wing. These are are Trump. And I bet you actually Trump is going to invest in either one of those. But Trump has no money. Well, actually, (laughs) well, he's going to invest his Russian money. We have more money than Trump. (laughs) Trump's Trump's
2: a complete fraud. That's
0: actually very true. He's (laughs) no money. What's he going to do? But while the riots were going on. They started off going all for Trump. Yeah, yeah. And then when it all started going arseways, they started pulling back and saying, oh, no, this this is Antifa. And there were some crazy conspiracy theories going around. Like, for instance, one of them was that this was a Dem plot. A Uh, democratic plot. Yeah. The Demo Rats plot. Because, (laughs) and the reason being was that, you know, that piece of footage where the cops kind of stood back and let the crowds, some of the crowds come through.
2: Yep, I, you saw I, that. I did, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, they were saying that this was timed so it would coincide with the debate for the voter fraud part of the debate that was going on that day. So what actually happened was, this is great, they're brilliant for coming how, how up How long do you spend at night watching this sort of nonsense? <laughs> but the, the theory was that the cops let them in just in time to disrupt that. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. They disrupted that... Uh, That's side debate. Of the debate. Yeah. And then when they did reconvene, they skipped the vote on that and went straight on to the college count, which was so of course they're all up in arms on Twitter and parlor and all these kind of things. Conspiracy uh, theories. We will uh, do oh, a man. We, we will do so a good. whole
2: podcast on conspiracy we should. theories.
0: Because I do quite like them and I know you love them. I love them, but what is disturbing is that they have become so prevalent over the last few years with Trump. I forget Trump to go back to Jesus that was the greatest conspiracy
2: theory all your man's dead no he's not dead yes he is dead
0: (laughs) that's true (laughs) actually think about it
2: Okay, let's move on You know what I really like is your new Jamiroquai look today, you and, the, and the Daniel Boone pelt and the buffalo horns and all, channeling your inner Daniel yeah. Boone, that extraordinary stuff. You know, but he's, he's my standout character, by the
0: way, the oh, Jimiroquite yeah. dude. Yeah. Okay, well he's at all of them. He was at all the BLM ones as well, apparently. So he's just he's kind of a, a serial protester.
2: Yeah, but there, I mean there is but there is a serious point here. I mean, there's a really serious point about... I mean, actually, what is interesting, we're going to talk all America today. We're mm. going to go and talk to Tom Frank in Kansas. He's in Washington. Yep. We're going to talk to him in a second. But it's interesting, there was two Americas on display this week. There was Jamiroquai and his mates, yep. right? Proud Boys, Trump, etc. The chaotic end to the Trump presidency, the carnage that he talked about this time last year, He talked this time four years he talked about it, American carnage, there it was, his people. But also there was an extraordinary other America on display, which was what happened in Georgia, right? Yeah. In Georgia, you get now Raphael Warnock, a black man, and John Ossoff, a Jewish man, for the first time, right? Yeah. In Think about Georgia. Georgia is the state where the Ku Klux Klan was refounded in 1915. Okay. Okay, so deep Georgia. And yet the other side of America, while in Washington you get all the right-wing extremists in Georgia, they're electing a black man and the first Jewish senator ever from that county. Have you ever
0: heard your man talk, Asif, No. Brilliant. He's he's really impressive. You know, do you know somebody who, who talks and there's no fat on the words at all? Everything he says is very precise and very spot on. Like you
2: of course exactly. the cicero of stalorkan <laughs> the great ardor. listen let's go to the states and talk to tom get his view on it tom frank tom good
1: to have you on the show how are you man i'm i'm uh i'm actually doing really well i just got a covid test i'm officially certified healthy Excellent. i'm going ski- skiing tomorrow in vermont oh up in, uh, in,
2: in bernie country
1: yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, they got mountains and snow, so it's uh, that that magic combination. I'm going
2: to start this interview by re- reading from the opening page of a book by Tom Frank called "The People Know." And it says, and this is in the context of what's happened this week. In just a few short years, we Americans knew what we were doing in the world. We were going to make the planet into one big likeness of ourselves. We had the experts. We knew how it was done. Our policy operatives would de-radicalize here and the regime change there. Our economists would float billions to the good guys and slap sanctions on the bad guys. And pretty soon the whole world was going to be stately and neat, a place that was safe for dead instruments and empowerment seminars, our hors d'oeuvres in the embassy, the gardens, the taxis we hailed in our smartphones. Democracy of the we sang. What yes. has happened? That yeah, did you America? notice the
1: reference to Ulysses? Did you notice the echo from Ulysses? Stately and Neat? Oh, man, that's- Stately? Stately <laughs> Mulligan. <laughs>
2: we did book <bulk laughs> Mulligan last week here, but tell me about America right now. What's your take?
1: Oh, my God. Uh, well, it's crazy. Okay, so the last couple of days, you know, I haven't even been able to sleep. It's been that that bad. I, I'm here in Washington, so I take it personally. Uh, with one branch of government basically- incited an attack on another branch of government uh, absolutely nuts uh, and the day it ha- i couldn't believe it happened at first i thought it was kind of amusing and then i was like oh my god what the hell is going on here this is terrifying you know they they beat up cops the cops shot back you know it's it's absolutely nuts and and uh, i say this as someone you know we've had a lot of protests over the last year you know i was in wisconsin 10 years ago when they occupied the Uh, Wisconsin State Capitol building, but this is different. This is, you know, this is this is riot. This is I don't know if I'd call it an attempted coup because it's too stupid for that. These people didn't know what they were doing. I mean, they had it it obviously was premeditated. Don't don't get me wrong. They they had thought this through. I don't know if Trump thought it through, and his leadership is just absolutely and utterly disgraceful. And uh, I think they they should remove him from office, but I I don't know if they're they're not going to be able to.
2: Okay, you think, um, but you think they could and they should, even with ten they days. To I go. think Pence.
1: I think Pence should do it. I think he should do it right now. It's he's he's dangerous, and I think they should. The Republicans should, come, but they've already they've already blown that, and uh, the the uh, Congress moves too slowly to get him out. He has twelve days left. That Congress moves too slowly to get him out in that time. They're just they're just too damn slow, and you, you, there's no point even trying it unless they've got the votes to actually remove him from office. Just impeaching him for symbolic reasons is pointless. They've already done that. You know, and by the way, this is real. I thought the last impeachment was um, you know, iffy. You know, It was like, why are they doing this? I don't and, – and they themselves, they dropped it as an issue. Biden never even talked about it you know, uh, during the campaign. But this is real. He needs to go. They need to get him out of there. And one of the reasons they need to get him out of there is it would block him from ever running again if they successfully removed him from office. But we we digress. So the country is, people are really shook up. People are frightened. Although, we not, you know, I talk to my relatives and I talk to people I know back in Kansas and they're really not that upset about this. For them, it's something distant and far away. And they've seen riots on TV all summer or what they call riots, you know. And uh, it's not that shocking for them. But for me, it's it's really upsetting. Now, we also had an election. I haven't spoken to you exactly. since November, right? And, and so, the, I, so the Democrats have 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 come away with a majority. So the Democrats have have won and they and they they won the presidency and they've got the Senate and the House of Representatives although uh, both of them just by the skin of their teeth, very very narrow majorities. In fact, in the Senate it's going to be tied and they're counting on their Democratic vice president to cast the tie-breaking vote basically all the time. This is not a great recipe for ruling, for legislating. But <laughs> as but, you can but, it, imagine. but
2: but the thing is, Tom, it is a recipe in the sense that you know, if you look at Trump, you know, people talk about Trump, and we, we I want to talk about it in a second, Trumpism, Trump movement, the relationship between the Tea Party and where it all comes from. But the balance sheet for Trump at the end of the day is chaos. At the end, the Republicans have lost the presidency, the Senate, and the House.
1: Yeah. So uh, this is, so it, it just, you know, look, it, it's that's that's typical. He's been a, when you're a lousy president, that happens. <laughs> the thing is that this doesn't spell the end of Trumpism. And the, the, I mean, one of the things I would draw your attention to is that every pundit, uh, expected that the election in November, you know, t- a month ago, to be uh, an overwhelming Democratic victory, and it wasn't. It was uh, it was a narrow Democratic victory, and in in the House they actually went the wrong the wrong way. Uh, the Democrats lost seats rather than gained them, and I was surprised that Trump's vote increased as much as it did. That was really strange. I was very surprised by if when you when they did the when they sort of drilled down into the you know whose votes changed that Trump did as well as he did among Latino communities. You saw the results in those uh, counties along the Rio Grande in Texas. Uh, That's quite impressive. You know, remarkable what he did. Uh, And but then the, the, the places that went for Biden are the kind of places like where I grew up. And I can tell you some great stories about this. So I grew up we've talked about this before. I grew up in Johnson County, Kansas. This is the affluent suburbs of Kansas City, Missouri. It's, Kansas City is right on the state line, and uh, the sort of historic part of the city is in Missouri. But beginning in the 1950s, the, well, earlier than that, but mainly in the 1950s, the city spilled over into the state of Kansas, and that's the part where I grew up. And it was—it's always been very, very wealthy. Still is. And, you know, excellent public schools, the whole thing, you know, that rich white people do when they're all in this little suburban county by themselves. And um, I grew up there and I made fun of them many times. I used to write, you know, articles about making fun of their architecture and making fun of their taste in music and making fun of their taste in drama and literature. I wrote a whole book about it called What's the Matter with Kansas, where it starts with me like making fun of these people because they were the most Republican people in America affluent white professionals you know accountants architects this is the you know the upper class of kansas city all living in this little county and very very affluent and uh very republican they hadn't voted for they haven't voted for a democrat since 1916 woodrow wilson wow okay this county i mean uh and back then it wasn't metropolitan it was rural right it was farmers they hadn't, they hadn't voted for Democrats and said every election went Republican. Republicans controlled every office. They controlled the local government. They, you know, governors of Kansas were often drawn from Johnson County. This is the ruling class, not only of the city, but of the entire state. And they were Republicans, of course, because that's where that's what money is. That's what the ruling class is. Well, Mr. McWilliams, Biden just won there. Biden just flipped Johnson County blue, something I thought I would never see as long as I lived. Johnson County just went for the Democrat. And not only did it go for the Democrat, you drill down into the data and the richest parts of Johnson County. These are parts that are on the national scale rich, like billionaires living next door to billionaires in these baronial manners from the 1920s, right? He won every precinct in that part of the city. Biden did. This is, this is, what is happening in this country is a gigantic reversal.
2: So let's talk tr- about that reversal because this is something that I'm not picking up. If I listen to the news, if well, I they don't, skim read, I'm they not, don't
1: let me on the news in this country anymore, my friend. You know that. I, no. you, they used to be very interested in what that I, I have to say, but that's it is. This is now what I'm telling you is like forbidden knowledge, which I, is funny because it's, it's right out in the open. You know, you can but, you easily know, look it up. As I
2: said to you, you know, sometimes you start mainstream, you go radical, you go fringe, and then you swing back. You're going to be on CNN before you know it. But listen,
1: oh, that's nice of you to say that. But in my career, it's been the other way around. I started as a as a fringe, you know. I had to start my own magazine, right? And then and then I became this. Uh, you know, I was on TV and radio and whatnot, and now I've gone back to the to podcasts uh,
2: the in Ireland. Jesus, yeah,
1: here I am, right? <laughs> this is you, know, this is the biggest audience I'm gonna get for this book, right? It's you, David McWilliams, <laughs> and your friends, well, exactly. Are going to buy, and the book
2: is called <gasps> The People Know. Now, Tom, <laughs> tell me what about the big switch in America? Because it, what I, what I, what I love about talking to you is this kind of helicopter view that hold on a second. The Democratic Party has taken the epicenter, the ground zero of the Republican Party in Kansas, yes. which yes. is the epicenter of America. And the Republican Party are now taking all sorts of strays and waifs that used to be the Democratic base.
1: Right. The uh, labor white working class base. And, the, you know, to give you a, the, the sort of opposite of Johnson County, Kansas is um, there's a county in Pennsylvania, in Ohio, where Youngstown is. This is a industrial, former industrial, what, the, what we now call the rust belt, because we've had this thing in America called deindustrialization. And, you know, it's yes, just very it's painful. Just- Oh, yeah, it's it's just well, it's astonishing. It's a reversal of everything that if you're as old as me, I'm 55. It's a reversal of everything you thought you knew about America, that this was the land of the great and the great industrial nation of the world. This was the great middle class nation. This is a place where everybody even, you know, working class people had a stake. And deindustrialization is the ultimate reversal of that. And it's just burned through this country without any politicians raising a finger. Why? Because they, they thought this was fine. They have no problem with it. They, they're they responsible for it, you know? But it, but it's also, I was
2: listening to Mitt Romney the other day. Now, Mitt Romney, of course, has is now reinvented as a lovely chap and a really nice guy. Maybe he is. But, you know, Mitt Romney was working for one of the large consultancy firms, McKinsey, for many, many years. And their job was- Oh, you're was, thinking Bain. It was Bain, Bain, wasn't Bain, it? Bain, McKinsey, Spain, McKinsey. They're all the bloody same. <laughs> I know. And their stock and trade- <laughs> In many cases, was managing the deindustrialization to make sure that the owners of the industry managed to sell the rump of the industry for their own gain, right. and the
1: workers got screwed. And that's right. They call this offshoring. they have all sorts of they have all sorts of nice euphemisms for it. But let's talk. But about that's the that's basically system. what they did. Yeah. So let's
2: talk about the reality of that shift and what it means for the next decade, four years, five, let's not,
1: half decade. Well, it's, there's that, but there's also a shift in consciousness, which is, uh, you know, my friend Matt Taibbi has written about that, that the um, the media, you know, following the example of Fox News, Fox News was kind of the pioneers in this, that figured out that politics was also entertainment and sort of embraced a lot of the, uh, what, you know, the sort of fake populism of the right. Uh, Way back when and uh, and started selling it to these audiences. And it's very, you know, it's very seductive. I don't know if you ever watch Fox News, but it's 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 uh, for a certain kind of person who's done pretty well in life. I wrote about these people in What's the Matter with Kansas. I called them the bitter self-made men. Oh yes. These guys, who, yes the guy, I, these guys who've done very well in life, uh they're they're very prosperous, they're very affluent, but they feel like they're disrespected. They constantly feel like everyone is sneering at them because they're not like well educated and they don't have good manners and they're kind of they're kind of bigoted, but, you know. And this
2: But this is Dickensian. I mean, this is this is the mayor of Castlebridge, this is Thomas Hardy, this is the Victorian Revolution in England. This story is as old as the Hills. And yeah. yet in America.
1: It's entertainment in America, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like dress up like the guy from Jamiroquois and sack the Capitol. Right? <laughs> That's he's, where it is. He's he's,
2: he's 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 definitely our dude of the week. I mean John is actually John is gonna get a Jamiroquai hat. We're gonna actually get <laughs> his horns, we're gonna get a Daniel Boone, uh David Crockett Pelt, David Crockett. We're gonna be the Alamo and then John is gonna raid the doll here. Absolutely. I got the big horn. Cop, let us get let us get to the to, to the inflection point here, though. Right. Biden comes in in a week's time or two weeks' time. He's got basically the presidency the senate the congress behind him the trumpian revolution has been paused and has been besmirched and badly tainted by the last yes couple of days what happens yes. next
1: so look i'll tell you what i hope happens i'll tell you what's going to happen okay what i hope ha- happens is that biden steps up and unleashes a second new deal and, you know, energetically distributes vaccine, energetically props up the economy, pulls us out of this tailspin. You have a booming economy and Biden or some other Democrat is triumphantly reelected in four years, and and that's the end of this nonsense. And Biden also unleashes the labor movement, you know, uh, changes the laws so that it's possible to form a union in this country again, and that that which would change everything. A couple of other structural things you can do that would completely change the landscape and make sure that Trumpism disappears. Uh, He's not going to do those things. Biden is 78 years old. He's older now than Ronald Reagan was the day Ronald Reagan left office and flew back to California. You watch this; be there's no energy there. Um, He gets angry. You see flashes of anger from time to time that are often disconnected from. I mean, it's not clear what he's angry about. You don't. I don't see the the kind of energy there that is required. Look at the cabinet he's assembled. It's uh, it's just Obama 2.0. It's the cabinet that Hillary would have assembled. It's a whole lot of glittering prize winners, Mr. McWilliams, people with. um,
2: Yes, with with very nice people with advanced
1: degrees, people with, uh, you know, people who've won all these, you know, uh, Rhodes scholarships and all this other bullshit that Democrats now you know respect so highly. Uh, These are not people that are going to make waves. These are people that are. I mean, what are the words that I, I like to use to describe Democrats? They're satisfied. These are satisfied individuals. These are incredibly complacent individuals. These are people that don't think they have anything to worry about because, you know, the official strategy of the Democratic Party is wait for demographic change. We don't have to do anything. You don't have to serve anybody. You don't have to deliver anything. Demographic change is the only thing that matters, and it's going our direction. So don't do anything. They feel no concern for the working class as working class people, deindustrialization, et cetera, all the things we were just talking about. The, I mean, if anything, it's the other direction now. I mean, there's been this whole, you know, you wouldn't know this if you had not been in America the last couple of years. People hate what they call the white working class now, which is, by the way, either uh, an absolute majority of the population are real close to it. I mean, over 50% yeah. of the population. This country. And and the uh the sort of pundit class and the well, you know, Bien pensant, you know, right thinking uh professionals hate these people. I'm telling you, David, this is not a healthy situation. Um, when the party of the left despises, you know, a big chunk of the working class. That's not that's not good. Anyhow, this is this is Biden's team, and I do not expect great things from them. And I expect on the contrary that they'll sit around and they'll fiddle around for two years. The the rollout of the vaccine will be a fiasco and a disaster. And that the next Trump to come bubbling up, Trump himself is, I think you're right, permanently disgraced. I think Josh Hawley is permanently disgraced. I think um, Ted Cruz is real close to that. But there's a bunch of them that aren't. And you'll see one of you know America. Mar- sure. Memories are
2: short, and people move on, and you know. Right,
1: and uh, you're going to find that a lot of America isn't really upset about what they just did because they don't know it. They don't know about it. They don't. You know, this is inside Washington stuff. They don't but, know. But but what- also
2: the latest polls, uh, to the extent that you can actually trust them, given what's happening with polls, are saying that amongst Republican voters, the majority, it's a small majority, but the majority think it was okay. Amongst <laughs> Republican voters.
1: Jesus Christ! You know, so can... I actually, I, I've I've spoken to some of them who thought who who said, "Well, this is no different than what Black Lives Matter was doing all Precisely. summer." Precisely.
2: Yeah. Exactly. So I mean, so you're, and this is this is this is what i want. so. It's this idea that the the meritocracy, the educated class, as you said, the, the glittering prize class, has taken over the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party allowed itself It's because this strange. Sort of triumvirate of Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood being their their sort of totemic heroes, yep. okay, rather yep. than blue-collar workers, right? Yep. So the blue-collar yep. worker, to the extent that he or she is still around, and they are around, they've got to find a new home. Trumpism is a home for them and what right. you're saying that's with the, the whole
1: that's this is the, the genius of this so we talked about the democratic strategy i want to take you back for a second to the 1990s when the all of these things these strands first came together and the democrats realized that they had a winning a, a possibility of winning with this professional class approach bill clinton administration yep and they they had a saying and th- this was these Trends were already manifest at the time. I wrote a book about it at the time called What's the Matter with Kansas? And they, these trends were already manifest. You could see this happening. But they had an answer to it. And the answer was, you talk about black voters who Clinton massively pissed off with welfare reform, I mean, insulted with welfare reform, the crime bill, etc. And you talk about working class voters, union members who he massively, these are two huge elements of the Democratic constituency at the time, unions, who he massively pissed off with NAFTA and various other trade agreements. And what was the Clinton Clintonism's answer to these groups? You know what it was. They have nowhere else to go. Until they Fair went caption. to the Tea Party. Until Trump came along. And Trump is like Trumpism or the Tea Party, however you want to put it. But Trumpism gave them somewhere else to go. And that's the whole genius of this. You remember Trump's slogan or one of his slogans in 2016? He would say to black voters, what do you got to lose? You know, give it give me a try. And that was really cynical and, and and misleading. But but
2: but also kind of factually accurate. He's yeah but it say, was
1: it was it was exactly the right thing to say to people who have been taken for granted by the democratic leadership for so long And uh, you did see some movement by the way in this election uh, a month ago among black voters toward Trump, which is you know um not that surprising because the black voters support the Democrats so overwhelmingly that I mean which there's only one way for them to go really yeah. but the, the the movement among the white working class has been, Shocking, startling. Well, that's happened over the last 30 years. And then now the movement among Latino working class voters, that's starting now. But this is all look, there is precedent for all of this. So in the New Deal days, one of the main elements of the New Deal coalition was what was Catholic voters. This is overwhelmingly working class white people. And they, uh, over the years, they developed different ways of talking about them. And in the 60s, the term was the white ethnics. They called them white ethnics and the white ethnic swung from the democrats to the republicans in that period in the late 60s and all through the 1970s there is all sorts of literature about it this happens you can't just count on demographics to to be your pal and sure, that you, these groups will never change sides no yeah, and you you need a, what, you need a message
2: that is more than yes we can or, or that we're that we're really smart yeah, that's a bad
1: message. That's a really bad one. That's a really dumb one. Okay. That's that's the
2: stupidest <laughs> smart message I've ever heard.
1: I know, but it's so flattering to this like small group of people who are in charge, you know? This is what you start to realize about these guys. Everything revolves you haven't read the whole the whole my populism book yet, but you get to the chapter about the 1950s and how the word got flipped. How the word Went from meaning, you know, working class movement to meaning proto fascism, and the, the guys. that The word flipped populism.
2: It, the word populism. Yeah, the word, populist, yeah, the word populism.
1: Okay. How did it get flipped? And the uh, the guys who flipped it were these intellectuals, and they did it like uh, because they themselves personally disliked. The idea of working class movements being in charge. They want themselves to be in charge. And that's why they flipped it. It's to discredit the other, like uh, the, this main element of the Democratic coalition.
2: But listen, we could talk for hours. <laughs> Let us conclude, Tom Frank, OK, on the United States. What you're saying to me is populism has taken a side movement, right? But it is, you think it's the movement of the future in the States.
1: Is that what you're saying? Look, I, I use the word populism differently than you do. I think uh, – the, look, uh, there's no question but that working-class anger is the future. The problem is that the party of the left in this country has completely lost touch with it, and the party of the right uh, appeals to it with all this kind of made-up crap you know, like QAnon and whatever the hell it is. And um, look, as I've said to you before – We are in the middle of a vast historical experiment in this country. What happens to a middle class society when there is no left? We successfully killed the left in America. There used to be one, but we killed it. And we're now in the middle of a great experiment in this country to see if you can have a middle class society without a political left. And what we're learning, what happens, you know, who did the left used to speak for? Well, you, you and I are old enough to know. It spoke for working class people. That's what the left was about. It was about economic concerns. And you have to, in America, you have to really dig to find that out. People don't even know that, that that's what the left was about. So you take that away. And it doesn't matter what you know or what you think you know. These people are going to be angry. These people still have their grievances. Their grievances are legit. They really they really are pissed off about what's happened to their way of life. Well, what's going to happen is that the party of the right, which is we have a robust party of the right in America, they are going to invent, you know, extremely clever ways of reaching out to, and maybe not even clever. You know, they'll happen upon them randomly like Trump did. You know, he's just he's just throwing shit out there in 2016. And the audience cheers at some of it. So he keeps saying it, you know, and they learn. Uh, by trial and error to do this stuff, and and eventually, he's got these people on his side. He's reached out to them with some other grievance, some made up way of talking about their problems and re- and and despising elites, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they're gonna they're gonna succeed, and this is going to go on. And uh, one other thing I want to tell you about the the right, you know, from my years of studying them. We've just seen an incredible outrage here. What the right does in this country is they build on their outrages. This year's outrage is tomorrow's norm. And this will go on and on and on uh, until the day that the Democratic Party finally figures out that just, you know, throwing your Ph.D. in people's faces isn't good enough. You know, (laughs) demanding that the world get down on its knees and respect you is not enough. That's not going to pull it. It, It's not going to win in a democracy.
0: Tom, can I just ask you a quick question just before we finish up? Yeah. Just to take you back to the Biden cabinet and how they structured that. Is the expectation in America that these first four years of the Biden administration, probably the only four years actually. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to
2: do well if he keeps
0: going. Yeah. (laughs) But (laughs) is the expectation that he's going to try and reverse or fix everything that Trump did?
1: Well, Biden himself has said he's not going to do that. I mean, he's also said that he, that he could. So Trump uh, got a lot of things done through executive orders, uh, which Obama did before Trump. But Trump, it was obviously massively more consequential. And so everything that Trump did by executive order, Biden can reverse by executive order. But Biden has already said he's probably not going to do that. Look, what they're counting on is uh, in American politics, it's not the first four years. It's the first hundred days that matter. This right. goes back to Franklin Roosevelt, who had a really spectacular first hundred days, got world changing, you know, history changing legislation done. And uh, I, I haven't seen any indications that they're planning anything really, really great. You know, there's been a lot of suggestions out there, but look, we all know what has to happen. He has to go after COVID uh, in, a, in a you know really aggressive way. He has to turn the economy around immediately. And I haven't seen anything that indicates they know how to do those things, and it, which is which is depressing. But- yeah,
0: it seems like a tall order, all right.
1: No, it's not, though. They can do it. We've done it in the... Look, look, Democrats have done it in the past. The
0: amazing thing is in in
2: 1948, New York City vaccinated some outrageous number of people in the millions In a matter of In a very short amount of time.
1: Wait, they did that. We've done that many times in this country. Have you so I, I, I know you wanted to wind up, but my dad is 92. I just went on the Kansas, the Kansas, you know, health department website to try to figure out where he goes to get the vaccine and you should check it out because it's like they've developed this whole protocol for handing out the vaccine it's enormously complicated there's no indication of where you go to get it where how where you sign up where you put your name it says that that people his age will be able to get it at some point but it doesn't say where or how or how you can make contact with them there's no indication it's just this massive extremely complicated program of who gets it before who else. And it's like, wow, you really, you put a lot of money into devising that scheme, didn't you? You know, it's just like, roll the fucker out. Get it out there. Having it in every every elementary school. Everything you said there is
0: incredibly familiar.
2: exactly what's happening here. And do you know why I believe it is? And we'll leave it at this. You might just have a, a last beat in this, Tom. It's because the public service has been infantilized by consultants. So in the yeah. old days, you had... Ooh, like, that's good. No, but that's, it's true. Yeah, that's so, totally
1: true. Yeah, yeah. If you, I don't mean that's good. I mean, that's a good take. Oh, okay, say keep... it again. Say it again. <laughs> don't Frank like my take. No, but it's that's true. That's a brilliant take. It's, no, a brilliant take. <laughs> it's the best take I've heard of for years. No, but if
2: if you disembowel the public sector of the bits of the public sector that are difficult, like how do we react to crisis? Like, how do we plan things? And you give it to Bain and McKinsey and all these crowds. Then when actual fact, when something actually happens, the public sector is not capable of reacting because you've gutted it of its competence.
1: Yeah. But you've also, in America, you've got the added problem of a complete moron, an imbecile at the top, you know, who hasn't, he hasn't said anything about COVID since the election. All he cares about is like challenging the election. He hasn't, I mean, he's, he's lost. He's like mentally lost. You well,
2: know, you've probably seen the last of them.
1: Yeah! Thank goodness. You know, I'm going. I'm going skiing tomorrow. I don't, When I come back, he's going to be gone. I'm not going to think about him anymore. <laughs> Tom, listen. Take care of yourself. Yeah, this was fun. Okay, excellent Thanks, as Tom. always, Tom. See you All soon. All right, man. so long, guys. Hiring
2: for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
0: There's always great mileage in Tom I have to say ah, he's, he's one of the, He's actually He is His writing Is
2: exquisite I mean it's yeah. Unbelievably Beautiful prose I mean it's He writes beautifully
0: But his analytical brain Is second to none But do you know What was interesting now Is all the stuff That he was saying Almost echoes What Steve Bannon Was saying mm-hmm. In Fire and Fury Remember from a couple of A couple, couple of years ago, ago? Yeah, yeah the big The big book about Trump Let me, yeah, let me yeah. read you a quote He says, Trump, in Bannon's view, was a chapter or even a detour in the Trump revolution, which had always been about weakness in the two major parties. The Trump presidency, however long it lasted, had created an opening that would provide the true outsider their opportunity. Trump was just the beginning. And in actual fact, Trump tweeted recently and in his so-called concession speech, he kind of referred to that himself. He said, to all my wonderful supporters, this is only the beginning.
2: But I think it's, I mean, if you think about what Tom is saying, think about what Steve Bannon is saying, what they're saying is America is going through a huge experiment. Now, the Mm. interesting thing is politics kind of tends to go like that. Politics and economics go in long, long cycles. And when you're in the middle of an inflection point, you don't really see it in the context of cycles. But I think, you know, What they're talking about there is the white working man and woman and where they find themselves in society and where they're going to go. And these ideas, John, like the idea that Trump is talking about, or Bannon is talking about, or Tom was talking about, is American nativism. It's Mm. basically a fear of the other. So when you get threatened, what you do is you identify the other and you say, they are the problem. Yeah. And this is one of the things, and it's very, very deep. You know that book I, I really like to refer to, How the Irish Became White? Oh, yeah. He, by Noel Ignatieff. It's a fantastic, yeah, it's yeah. a brilliant, and actually his son, Michael Ignatiev was a liberal politician in Canada. And so these are very, very interesting Canadian family. Mm. But that book, right, talks about how the Irish became the targets. So the Irish were like, the Latinos or the Asians or the Blacks of now, yeah,
0: of their time. And the yeah.
2: I, the idea was that the the Know Nothing Party, which was a nativist party, which yeah. is actually called the Order of the Star Spangled Banner, yeah. it's quite a good one, right? They were the set up of their day. They were the, yeah, in the eighteen fifties, mm. and the people they were afraid of were the Irish. It's it's again, it's quite it's it's, it's this culture idea. They also blamed the Irish for mixed race kids. From mulattoes. And if you actually look at that book, How the Irish Became White, yeah. there's a whole chapter on the census of 1850. I know this is the sort of stuff I like. Yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. You're, I know you're nodding <laughs> off there, right? Okay. But the census of 1850 identifies a new phenomenon in urban America called mulattoes, mixed race kids. Yeah. And overwhelmingly, the mothers were Irish, overwhelmingly. So these were poor Irish women who came into America. This is this idea of the black Irish. This is why there are yeah, so yeah, many yeah. Irish people, like Shaq O'Neill and Eddie mm. Murphy and all these, so many black Americans with Irish names. This is yeah. where they come from. But for the know-nothings, right, because they were racist, this was the evidence of how depraved both the African-Americans and the Irish were in these poor districts. Because not mm. only were they living cheek by jowl, but they were having kids together. And for white racists, this was an abomination. That's the first thing. The other thing was that Irish immigrants were reducing wages in certain areas. And of course, the Yankee workmen...
0: What do you mean? Oh, oh, through competition. Because there was was thousands of them coming in
2: all the time. And the Yankees... But, I mean, an extraordinary statistic in that book, which is that the average Irish male immigrant, the average... Think about their average lifespan when they arrived in America, was six years. Wow! From, from the time they landed from the time to- they landed from Ireland into America, they lasted, on average, six years before they died. Wow! So think wow. about the conditions they were in, right? But... That Jesus, nativ- that's shocking! It is shocking, isn't it? But that nativist streak has been in the United States for a long, long time. It's mixed up with religion, it's mixed up with ethnicity, it's mixed up with economics. It's mixed up with the politics. Yeah. So there's, there's a couple of things going on, right, John? It's not only the, the race issue, right, which is very explicit yeah. in the Trump's words. There, no, there were no black people in that uh, Trump rally the other day, okay? No, none. Right? Okay, so it's the, still, the same, still the same gene pool they're talking about. But the other thing is the contrast between what the white working man used to have, John, and what they have now. Now, so if you look in the last 30 years, it's not that the income of white working class Americans has fallen in absolute terms, but it's fallen in relative terms yeah, 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 to I know what you mean. largely, if you look at the, the most successful ethnic minority in America at the moment are West Africans. Everyone always says it must be Asians or Koreans or Chinese. The most successful bunch are West Africans are
0: Nigerians. And that is really freaking out the white working class, right? Wow, that's really surprising because it was always seen as, actually, particularly in the West Coast, is always the the Koreans. Well, Koreans and and, and Vietnamese and whatever.
2: Well, actually, in fact, now, right now in the last 10 years, right, it's West Africans, okay? Wow, that's amazing. 68% of them are employed as opposed to 58% of white Americans and as opposed to what, 62% of other migrants, right? And also, 6 out of 10 Nigerians have bachelor degrees, so they're incredibly well-educated. Oh, right, okay. So so, so so, what I'm saying is America's in flux, and when the white guy sees that, he sees, one, an ethnic nativist problem, yeah. as he saw in the Irish
3: yeah, yeah.
2: nearly 100, 200 years ago, and two, he's looking at his own position relative to those coming in, and this is what's driving this extraordinary fear on their part. It's the fear of the other. Now, the problem for them is that it's going to get worse, not better. I mean, what you're looking at, John, is if you go back to the nativist movement and you look at history, every big geopolitical event, every big change, whether it's technological or economic or whatever, has opportunities and costs. Mm. And in America, there is this nativist streak that they feel threatened by the change, right? Yeah.
0: So if you but look People at- generally feel threatened by change, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they do. They do. Yeah. But
2: I mean, the point is, you can't stop the change. This is the interesting yeah, thing. So yeah, no, yeah, you, yeah. you can't... Like what those guys were trying to do the other day in Washington is stop the change yeah, right? and refashion the world. Stop the steal. To a world. Yeah, but they want to refashion the world into a world that suits them. And that's not happening anymore. Yes. And of course, then, if you become frayed, you look for some political party to say, I'll look after you. Now, traditionally, it used to be the Democrats. This yeah. is Tom's point. Traditionally, the Democrats says, we're blue collar guys. We're going to look after you. Yeah. But because the Democrats have got into bed with the PhD class and the rock and roll class and the Hollywood class and the Wall Street class, they're about as different to the average white middle-class American as we are, or as Asians are, or as Africans are to them. I mean, it's a totally different culture. It's a
0: totally different- This is the meritocracy thing that we've been talking about. Exactly,
2: it's the same idea. So then you think, what happens to the middle-class in America if nobody's looking after them? If they're threatened, if they feel threatened, Mm. right? They become radicalized. They say, okay, You don't want it. And this is back to Steve Bannon's point, that we're at the beginning of a revolution in the United States. And that revolution has been aided and abetted by sort of messianic characters like Trump. But he's only the first of many. And of course, the idea is it's it's, it's a bit like what Larry Dunn said to the cops. Remember the heroin dealer? Yeah. When he was caught. Larry doesn't carry. Remember Larry? Yeah. Yeah. And he doesn't carry, right? But he said to the cops, you think I'm bad? Just wait till what's coming behind you. He said that to Dinny Mullins in the 80s about drug dealing in Ireland. Because he'd seen it, because he'd been buying the drugs around the world. And he said, you think I'm bad? Wait till see what's coming behind me. That was was really shocking. Just giving you a bit of my Larry Dunn, a little little Larry Dunn. But uh, to go back to the point about the white middle class in the States, right? The problem is in the beginning of all these iterations, all these things... It's maybe the working class guys in the factories get affected. But what the Americans don't seem to appreciate is that America itself is going backwards. America itself is declining. If you look at the trends for the next decade out to 2030, what you basically see is the world's power shifting towards Asia. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And the Americans themselves are just part of a process. So various iterations of the middle class in America are going to be
0: affected by this. It's not just going to be limited. To but this is also a large, large part of it is of their own making, in terms of globalization. And as we spoke before about the cheapest supply chains and all the rest, they've left all these, as Tom referred to, rust belts.
2: Well, absolutely. And I mean, but the rust belt was the beginning of deindustrialization, and this is. Extraordinary to answer your, your first part of that question, you're absolutely right. Is that what the Americans, it's not the Americans, is it, in general, we've always said in the podcast, that there is no equilibrium in economics. Mm. Economics is like a living organism. It's like Gaia. It's like, you know, it's like yeah. the earth, right? Yeah. And it keeps changing. So you a little fire here and suddenly something else changes over there. It's that idea that the, the global economy is a hypersensitive ecosystem. So you can't localize things and say, we're just going to make it work there because everything reacts, everything innovates and changes. But so the United States is kind of caught now in a sense that they are in the beginning of a process or in the middle of a process where a bit like happened in Britain. You know, in the 1950s, I think one of the British prime ministers, I think it was Anthony Eden, just Mm. said, we're now in the business of managing the decline. Right, so it's not about oh, right. being okay. the top dogs anymore. Yeah. It's basically, you know, we were top dogs, now we've got to manage the decline. And I think in America, there isn't that sense that they're now in decline. What is happening? If you look at the, the, the figures, so 2030, there's going to be more female millionaires than males in the yeah, world. Yeah, that's
0: a incredible stat.
2: 2001, 15% of the world's wealth was held by women. In 2030, it's going to be, think about it, it's going to be 55%. That's the world's middle class is expanding. Yeah. Right now the middle class of the world is largely European and American in 2030 which is only around the corner right it's going to be Chinese right, right. and if you think the other statistic i read the other day is in 2030 50% of Americans are going to be obese now obesity i, I
0: actually thought they already were to be honest. but but
2: half of them half of them yeah. right now so obesity as we know is all linked to social issues and and, and self-respect issues and lots of very very deep issues like yeah. this but what is happening is A gap is opening up in the political market for a new political party, a new ideology. Mm. And what we're seeing now is that although the Democrats have won the presidency, the Senate, and the Congress, so it looks like a slam dunk to the Democrats, what's actually happening is the momentum is still with the nativists.
0: As the likes of Bannon talked about. Yeah. And Trump is is talking about it as well. Yeah, but like I mean, I say, Trump he, Trump will come and go. The the Trumpism, that nativist yeah. idea, he basically lit the spark.
2: Yeah, he, he did. I mean you know, what Tom's talking about deindustrialization. I mean, that's real, John. Yeah. That is real, and it's critically important to try and understand the anxieties of people who feel threatened in every society.
0: Well, this is one of the reasons I asked Tom that question about will Biden try to reverse everything, which of course he's not going to, but he is going to have to bolster the Labour movement because that's the only thing that's going to appeal to the white working class or the white workers, as you say.
2: Well, the interesting thing is that Biden has surrounded himself with a more cosmopolitan version of Clinton's cabinet Mm. of 20 years ago, right? It's 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 essentially Obama's cabinet. It's a cabinet full of what I call blackboard economists.
0: Right. right? Yeah.
2: Who, are, who are good in school. Yeah. They're blackboard economists, not real world economists. I mean, talked to Andy Haldane the other day. Yeah. He says, you, you go to the pub, you talk to people, what's, your, what, what's going go on in your the life? the Bank of England. Yeah, the Bank of England chief economist, right? Mm. There is a massive disconnect between the Democratic Party and its obsession with blackboard technicians and the real lived experience of the average American in a de-industrializing the United States. Now, one of the reasons I feel strongly about this, and I've always done, is that deindustrialization has a face. These are individual people who lose their jobs. Yeah. And they lose their jobs largely because of policy. So companies don't tend to go bust on their own. They go bust because something else happens outside of their control. And you know, years ago, when I, I you know, one of the reasons you know I got into economics was because when my dad in the late 70s lost his job, yeah, it affected me, but I it, it forced me to think, how does this work? How can this happen, right? Mm. So if you think of what happened in Ireland in the late 1970s and early 1980s, massive recession. Now, there was a global recession at the time, yeah. but it was amplified here by the decisions taken at the very, very top. And those decisions were taken by people like Gareth Fitzgerald, old snobs like him, you know, and basically no, he is. He was a terrible old snob, right? And like Fitzgerald and all those guys said, we, we want to be very pro-European Yeah. and we're going to show this. We're going to tie our currency to the German Deutschmark, which is basically in effect saying we're going to pretend we're Germans. Right, right okay. Nobody believes that Irish people are Germans. So we yeah. tie your currency to the German Deutschmark because we want to be good Europeans, right? But all your industry is exporting to the UK, because that was our main market. So you tie your currency to the Germans. Of course, the German currency is very strong. So your currency gets very strong, right? So people, companies in Ireland that were manufacturing, they start to go out of business because they're becoming uncompetitive vis-a-vis the UK, right? And then the way the financial markets work is if you have a policy that is incredible, like you're saying, we're pretending to be Germans. people say, hold on a second, you're Irish. Your income per head is half of Germany. You will never be able to keep pace with the Germans. So therefore, the risk associated with that policy rises exponentially because people don't believe you. And therefore, in order for you to get money to come into the country with that exchange rate, you have to put your interest rates incredibly high to give people the incentive to put money in Ireland to protect them from their fear that you will devalue. Now, what actually happens then, it's called a real interest rate and
0: real exchange rate shock in economics. You just get hammered from both ends. You get hammered from
2: both ends, exactly, (laughs) exactly. So your company cannot export to the UK because you've priced yourself out of the market, but all companies have debts, and your debts suddenly go through the roof, and those companies collapsed. And what really annoyed me about, again, the Gareth Fitzgeralds of this world and economic policymakers was when I was in college trying to come to terms with all this and figure it out in my head... Mm. The only institution, so huge swathes of Irish manufacturing were destroyed in two or three years, right? Yeah. And unemployment went through the roof, right? The only institution that those fuckers were interested in saving was Beauleys. <laughs> do you remember this? In the 80s, I do. We pray to the Irish Times, Gareth Gerald saying, "We must save Beulah's." I'm like, man, you've just destroyed yeah. the manufacturing base. <laughs> Give me a break now. I I don't get it. Fellas in paint factories don't take coffee in the morning, (laughs) right? But I remember I was sitting in Trinity thinking, I'm doing economics. We're being run by this fella who, you know, speaks the language of Milton Friedman and operates the economic policies of Juan Verón. (laughs) And all he's interested in is... But why was he doing this? Why was he doing that? Now, this comes back to Tom's point. There is a massive disconnect between the academic, intellectual, PhD... Expert type, and I—we need experts, right? Yeah. But those experts have to actually end up doing the right thing, and the real world, right? There's a massive disconnect. And it's funny, you know, one of the reasons I went to get a job in the central bank is I wanted to see who were these Egypts? Yeah. Who were these people running the? You know, because I well, you know, because I could have gone from other jobs, but I actually really wanted to go in because I'd read the economics and I'd read what they were trying to do, and I could see what happened to my dad, and I could see what happened to loads and loads and loads. I mean, we're talking thousands, tens of thousands. Of manufacturing workers in this country, yeah. tens of thousands, right? And we destroyed the manufacturing base. We accelerated the Rust Belt deindustrialization yeah. in order to be good Europeans, and to go over to Brussels and say, you know. Was that the strategy?
0: I mean, what was the strategy? What was the strategy? It was kind just of, to be a good European. It
2: was, it, was to be, it was to be seen to be good Europeans, to go along with what was ever happening, right? Now, the cost to that, the cost of that policy, was monumental. But because, and I really do believe, because there weren't that many economists around to popularise, to understand it, to say, people didn't see what was going on. That's the problem. That's why this generation is much better. Yeah. Because it's transparent and people see what's going on and they get different ideas and and whatever, you know. Whereas back then, there was just one view. And and also, if you took an opposite view, you were ideological, right? That there wasn't any place for the, the thinker who's not really ideological There there wasn't a stream to swim in. You had to be either left or right or centrist or whatever. But if you think at the time, the people who really got destroyed by those policies were the industrial working class and manufacturing class and people who actually worked in real industries that made things, right? That really made things. Fast forward to the United States, deindustrialization is exactly the same process but it has a face because it's families it's fathers it's Mm. mothers it's brothers it's sisters and those people rightly feel we are not being spoken to by the Democratic Party Yeah because I don't recognize the Harvard educated master's PhD individual who is supposed to be talking to me about economics but economics for me is my balance sheet at the end of the week. It's yeah. my wages. It's my job. That's economic, everyday economics. So yeah. you've got blackboard economics over here which is all fine and equations and all yes. that malarkey yeah, 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 yeah. that I used to do and then you've got everyday what I would call kitchen
0: sink economics yeah.
2: which is back to our friend Xenophon from last week. Oh, yes. Icon, NOMOS, yeah. the affairs of the house.
0: Yeah. Xenophon and the Xenophonics. The on Xenophonics. A world, on a world tour.
2: Tanya, listen, <laughs> it could be our band. It could be our band. But so into this gap emerges a political philosophy which speaks to the blue-collar worker. Yeah. But it's not just blue-collar. What people don't understand, this is an ongoing process. So people today are in, you know, consultancy jobs or, you know, service jobs. It's the same process. And if you look at the way in which the world has changed, let's just give us a few figures. on. Yeah, on yeah, right. yeah, go on. Okay. Right, John, if you think of the big trends, right, mm. the world is changing rapidly. The biggest industrial revolution is going to be in sub-Saharan Africa, right? In yeah. the next 10 years, yeah. there's 500 million acres of undeveloped agricultural land in Africa. Undeveloped, completely undeveloped.
0: Agricultural land or... or, or Agricultural land, yeah, but, it, but it,
2: it's agriculture. It's, it's, wow. It's, uh, that's the size of Mexico. Wow. It's phenomenal, right? If you think of like the middle classes, right, the American middle classes, right, there's going to be one billion members of the middle class by 2030. At the moment, the amount of Americans in the middle class, which is much broader than us, because they describe it much broader, is 230 million. Right. By the end of the decade, there's going to be 290 million American middle classes, right, mm-hmm. of the middle class, but there's going to be one billion in the middle class worldwide and two thirds of them are going to be in Asia. So this is a total, right. total, total change, right? And, you know, what is difficult for a country is when you're top dog, when you start to decline. Yeah. Because that's much, much harder than if you're on to decline all the time or if is. you never ex- experience yeah. wealth. And that's this relative idea
0: in the United States. It, but this is not just the States, Mac. This is happening. Well, we we talked about seventies in Ireland, but this is happening all over the world at this stage. It's going uh, to happen here. I mean, basically here, yeah. Western Europe, Canada, Japan,
2: America, and Australia, right, are the countries that were standout wealthy mm. forty years ago. Okay, in comparison, and there used to be this idea of the first world and the third world, and I was yeah, quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. I was listening to CNN when I was watching the other thing the other day. The Americans and the Kwai and all those fellows, right? And what was quite funny was the commentary. A lot of Americans were saying, commentators were saying, this sort of thing doesn't happen in America. It happens in the third world,
3: right? Yeah, 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 yeah. As
2: if that's that's not happening now. What's happening now is the world is changing profoundly. And here we've got to realize that we've had a good 40 years innings. As I've always said, we've done extraordinary things, But we've got to keep doing extraordinary things because the world isn't waiting for Ireland to get its act together. Yeah. It doesn't care. And we've got to figure out how do we negotiate this extraordinary change so that what is happening in the United States, which is a Trumpian revolution, doesn't happen here. So how does the broad centre remain relevant in Ireland? That's the key question. So explain that one to me. Ireland managed to, by using the tax system, yeah. import a huge amount of new manufacturing jobs. Did that extremely well. Yeah. So we've got to figure out how do we keep that model going? How do we attract in investment and people, fuse them together with our own capital and our own people to make goods that the rest of the world wants to buy? It's not mm. that hard.
0: That's all you've got to do, right? can, can I just stop you there? Just explain one thing to me. After Gareth Fitzgerald, when they wiped out manufacturing, at what point did they realise actually this ain't working? And where was the change? And was that a deliberate really good change, no, or was it I, luck? I think it was luck, right? Really? So, so you have all this
2: thing in Ireland, right? You've got this hagiography about big men in Ireland, right? Hagiography. Hagiography is when you it's like it's a, when you write a an arse kissing history. Is a hagiography, right? Okay. It's like, oh no, you're Good fantastic. Year, never heard that. It's That's a great, great word. Oh, yeah. no, you're fantastic. Oh no, no, you're fantastic. Oh, no, you're even better, right? I <laughs> like yourself and Tom a, earlier. <laughs> yeah, it's a, exactly, exactly a hagiography. But it's an arse kisser's view of history, right? Yeah. And in Ireland, it's always the big man in history. So the narrative is the following: a fella called Ken Whitaker, who was an economist, and Sean Lemass came together yeah. in 1955 to write a paper that they published in 1958. Which was basically we're going to open the economy, right? And all economics that is that you learn a lot of economics you learn in Ireland says that was the moment when the economy yes, turned. Yeah, right?
0: yeah, you always hear that, yeah. yeah.
2: But it's bullshit because Go on. the economy continued to contract for three decades after that. Almost unemployment went through the roof. Emigration went through the roof. Okay. If this was a great policy, yeah, it would have been evident at least. A decade after it. Right. 60s, we were going very nowhere. 70s, we got up for a little bit, then went nowhere. 80s was a total disaster. So, from that great Lamas moment to about 1990 to Italian 90, yeah. nothing happened here. Okay. <laughs> Economically,
0: right? So, Italian 90 was the. <laughs> Italian 90 is very important. Okay. Right. It was the anchor year. Right.
2: Okay. So, I think something else was going on. I think we, and Italian 90 is important because who won Italian 90? Uh, Germany. Absolutely, your football knowledge is, is, is the Gary Lineker of economic podcasting here. But it's important 1990, because 1990, the unified German team won. Matthias, ah, yeah, Matthias okay. Sammer, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, do you remember these first yeah, It was I a do. unified German team. So I think we got lucky, and it's the following thing. Poor countries need capital. Poor countries usually have lots of labour, loads of people, yeah. and no capital. So the question is, how do you get less people and more capital to actually... And if you have no money, you've got to attract in other people's capital. So you've got to make it cheap, right? And the way you make it cheap is either your wages remain very, very low or your taxes remain very, very low. Mm. And if you go on the taxation side and if you have no capital and you go for low taxation, you don't lose anything because you had no capital taxes in the first place. So that's what we did, right? And this was a policy that was going on and on and on with some success, uh, some small success in the 80s. But then this policy goes through the roof in the 90s. And the question is why? Yeah, what why, happened? why, why, why? Nothing happened here. What actually happened was the fall of the Berlin Wall.
0: Oh, right. Yes, And of when course. the
2: Berlin Wall fell, which is the unified German football mm. team as our anchor, what happened was American corporations, once Berlin Wall fell, a whole load of things flowed from that, right? One was globalization. One was the internationalization of finance. One was the internationalization of manufacturing. One was American chief executive suddenly said, the world is ours now. Because who's gone? The Soviets, the communists are gone, right? So the Americans say, okay, let's go to Europe. At the time, the perception was that the Americans would invest in Germany or in Czech Republic or in Poland or in Hungary. So the idea was that Central Europe, the previously communist countries, would do extremely well. Nobody figured out that Ireland might end up being the bridgehead into Europe. So the Americans thought, no, why don't we base ourselves in Ireland to take advantage of this new Europe? And in the process, the Central European countries lost out and we gained enormously. But it was a stroke of luck. If the Berlin Wall right. hadn't fallen So it was down, more luck than It, it has, was more luck. Right. Than, and that's why you have Polish people working in Centra here and not Irish people working in Centra in Poland. Yeah. That's what's happening. So this is the huge change that's happening. So I think it was a combination of luck, which we should never discount in anything,
3: yeah. right? Yeah.
2: Having the right policies. Now, What we did do properly was we did educate a lot of people in the 80s. Our mates, older brothers, all emigrated, Mm. right? But we did educate people in the 80s who were there to do the work in the 90s when it came in. But my sense is that Ireland got lucky. And the reason Ireland got lucky is we're the only country in Europe with this trajectory of economics. So if this was going on all over the world, Portugal was on the same, Spain, Croatia, all, you know, southern Italy... The poor countries, yeah, but they didn't. So there's something unique happening in Ireland because our performance was unique, and I believe it, We just got lucky, right? And luck is really important. Now we've got to figure out how do we get lucky again.
0: But actually, Mac, we, you know, we need a little bit more well, luck at this stage.
2: We do need a bit, bit of luck. We also need, and, the, and it's not we, the whole of the formerly rich Western societies yeah. need to figure out that when you are given a chance by the electorate, which Joe Biden has been given a chance, yeah, to offer another solution to the threatened middle class, you have to come up with something more than more of the same, yeah. something more than, yes, we can. So it gets, it's nice touchy-feely, yeah. but, you know, it doesn't mean... People want meat and potatoes. They want to say, okay... going back
0: to the, the golden days yeah. type of thing. Yeah, so yeah.
2: you've got to say, okay, like, Roosevelt, 1930, say, okay, we're going to fix this. Mm. It's going to be big government for a while, but what we're going to do is we're going to try and tax wealth so that the wealthy don't take all the gains in society. We're going to try and slow down some of the deindustrialization. We're going to try and make, for example, America or Ireland or Britain more open to the world. So the idea is that rather than speak to the electorate on little, small things, I think there should be two strands of governments, right? One strand is fixing the day-to-day problems, like COVID, dealing with it, trying to get the vaccine working. Okay, the nuts and bolts of running the shop every day. But the other side has to
0: be... Big picture stuff. Big
2: picture stuff. Where are we going to do in, in 2030? The other side has to be, okay, we have two governments. We have a government for now, and we have a government for, let's say, 2040. And this has to work all the time. So you say, how are we going to negotiate all these changes? What policies are we going to put in right now which will actually make sure that in 2040, Irish kids, our children, as they yeah. grow up, and they will have kids by then, probably. Too, you know, they are actually well looked after, well figured. Like so, you know, the way the Norwegians—they found oil. Yeah. They said we're not going to spend any of it.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not one.
2: We're going to set up a fund, and we're going to look after people. So now the Norwegians are financed for about 300 years, which is amazing. Oh, that's
0: amazing. The yeah, British
2: yeah. found oil at the same time, and they blew it all on BMWs. <laughs> they did. The Brits found the same oil yeah, yeah. and Mrs Thatcher gave it away in tax cuts. <laughs> so the Brits could, ride, could, could drive BMWs who were made by yeah, them, yeah, yeah, which yeah. were made by Germans. <laughs> right, think about that's it. A, yeah. So we've got to be strategic. So I think, But do we place- have
0: the people though that have the empathy for the middle class and the working class and the big vision to take us through? I think there's... they Are uh, they in the right position. I
2: don't think they're in the right positions and I think that's one of the major problems is that we are creating in the advisory class, the policy advice class, yeah, far too much, I go back to say, blackboard technicians yeah. Yeah. and not enough people who've really worked and who really understand that, you know, economics is the business of people's everyday lives. And people's everyday lives have to be lived and experienced to understand that. And I would much prefer if there were, you know, a whole of people who've come from a different place and have a different life experience and drink with different people and hang out with different people. You know, that idea so that there will be a sense that if you allow economics to be hijacked by economists, by blackboard economists, what you get is equations rather than emotions. And emotions drive the world. And we need to get back to that. How are you doing there? this new year is kind of special because you're going to be locked down you're going to be stuck at home thinking what am i going to do why don't you give yourself or the person you love the gift of knowledge and join me and we can learn economics together in this lockdown you'll do an economics course together we'll do tutorials we'll do ask mac you can drop in questions i'll answer them and even better just because this lockdown is going to be such a pain, we're going to give you a 15% discount for this subscription, the annual subscription. So if you want to learn economics in the lockdown, why don't you subscribe patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams and let's learn economics together.